When we first get saved, we tend to focus only on ourselves. I focus on my salvation. I focus on my relationship with Jesus. I focus on my service to Jesus. I focus on my spiritual growth. And this is a, a good and a necessary part of the new birth. However, it's not supposed to stay this way. As we grow and mature, the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our me, is supposed to become we. Right? Our, it is supposed to include others as well as ourself. And as we do this, we necessarily begin to look for ways that we can help those around us. The Apostle Paul expressed it this way. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Right, now, he's not saying, don't care about you, just watch out for others. But he's saying, not just yourself, but also for others. This is a, a necessary part of spiritual growth. One of the ways you can tell someone who is emotionally mature from someone who is emotionally immature is whether or not they are selfish or selfless. An emotionally immature person is me and mine. An emotionally mature person is able to share and to put others ahead of themselves. It's exactly the same with spiritual maturity. A spiritually immature believer is still focused on me. I am the center of it all. How does this help me? What's in it for me? What does this do for me? A spiritually mature believer has begun to look out also for the interests of others. Part of the way we look out for the interests of others is we are concerned about the spiritual needs that others have. We look at the world around us and we begin to say, what is going on in their spiritual life? and How can I be a help to that? We are starting a series, we are in a series called Meeting Spiritual Needs. And we are going to try to understand the various types of spiritual needs that we see in the world around us and be challenged to rise to meet that need to the very best of our abilities. Primarily, for the next three weeks, we are going to look at one passage, one story, and break it down into various parts. So we're going to start... Today in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 14. I believe that's on page 748 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Matthew 17 and 14 says, And when they had come to the multitude... A man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, suffers severely, for he often falls to the fire and often to the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. 
And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured for that, from that very hour. Then disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The title of the message this morning is Seeing Spiritual Needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. God, you are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And we come today with a desire to be more like Jesus. We want to, to see the world as he saw it, to see the needs and feel the hurts of those around us. God, help us today to begin to, to be a people that would look at the world and see beyond ourselves. To look at the world and see more than just Lord, all the things that divide us, but Lord, let us see that, that we're all people created in the image of God, that we all need Jesus. And there's all kinds of spiritual needs in the people that we encounter on a daily basis. Let that bother us. Let it weigh on our hearts and let it empower us, Father, to, to do what we can to make a difference in the world around us. Fill me today with the Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech so that I can speak your words and your ways for your glory. Let your word sink deep into our hearts and bring change to our lives. Do this for Jesus' name and do this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. In the passage immediately preceding this, Jesus and the disciples have been upon what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up on the mountain to pray. While he was up there praying, he was transfigured before them. And they saw a measure of his glory. As they came down from the mountain, they were met instantly with a multitude and a problem. There was a man, a dad, had a son, had a problem. And he had heard about Jesus and what Jesus could do. So he took his son to the disciples of Jesus, expecting that they could help. They were unable to. So when Jesus comes down... The man, the disciples, and the multitude run to Jesus to, to try to get Jesus to help. The man's son had a problem. He was epileptic. He had seizures. Now, this story is repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you look at all of the stories, you find out some additional details. Right, for instance, in, in Mark's account, we find out that the kid's epilepsy was caused by demonic oppression or possession. The dad and the kid's need was both physical and spiritual. But it caused him to suffer greatly. The kid was not able to speak because of it. He, he foamed at the mouth when he had his seizures. And this had been going on basically the kid's entire life. He was the only child the, the father had. Matthew and Mark tell us that the, the issue was life-threatening because it caused him to fall into the fire and into the water. And as a parent, you can, you can imagine how distraught you might be something like this was going on with any of your children. And so the dad is at the end of his rope. There's no one else that can possibly help. Now, we know the kid had epilepsy and that that's what 
part of what caused his seizures. And we're tempted to say, well, how is that a spiritual need? Well, verse 18 and all of the other accounts remind us that Jesus rebuked the demon. See, a part of what was going on was that the kid was either demon-possessed or demon-oppressed. What the kid was suffering was both spiritual and physical. And that's not unusual. I think as a, as a general rule, what, someone is, what is going on in someone's life in the physical is, is often a reflection of things that are going on spiritually in their lives. The physical world is often a reflection of things that are unseen in the spiritual world. And that's what we see in this account. Now, this story gets a lot of, a lot of word time. It's in, all th- it's in three of the four Gospels. Probably a story we're all familiar with. But while this story gets a lot of time, it's not the only story like this we see. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus encounters people with spiritual needs and physical needs, and he, he does what he can to help them. All through the book of Acts, the disciples go through the world and they see people having physical needs and spiritual needs and they do what they can to help. What we have to realize is, as we go through the world, we're going to encounter people with all kinds of of physical needs and spiritual needs. And our job is to do what we can to help. But a, a key principle from this today is that I am surrounded by people with a wide variety of spiritual needs. Everywhere we go this week, we are going to encounter people that have all kinds of spiritual needs. And and spiritual needs could probably cover any number of things. And I'll say it's, it's unlikely that we'll encounter as many demon-possessed people as Jesus and the apostles did. But that doesn't mean there aren't spiritual needs. And as we encounter people that have physical problems, that doesn't mean that there's not a spiritual element to what's going on in their lives. I think there are three broad categories of spiritual needs that we'll encounter on a regular basis. One is that, that people are enslaved by sin. People are enslaved by sin. Now, chances are we all know people that are destroying their lives through sin. It could be drunkenness, it could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be pornography, it could be any any number of things. But they are they are committed to it it seems. They are continually making bad decision after bad decision. And And though they can't see it, you can see the damage it's doing to their lives. You can see what it's doing to them. One of the problems with sin is that sin over-promises and under-delivers. Sin promises pleasure to the extreme. Sin promises the fullness of freedom. Nobody can tell you what to do. You can do anything you want to do. Sin promises you fulfillment. Sin promises you a better way of life than you've ever known. Sin just promises everything that seems to be good about this world. The 
problem is that sin does not deliver on those promises. Now, there is an element of pleasure in sin or, or we wouldn't do it. The Bible talks about the pleasures of sin for a season. There is a, a period of time where sin is pleasurable. It's enjoyable. But that always comes to an end. A further problem with sin is that while it promises freedom, it actually delivers slavery. Sin is not the ultimate expression of freedom. Sin is the ultimate expression of slavery. Right, so write this down. Those who live in sin are enslaved by sin. And that is a fact. Those who live in sin are not living in freedom. They are living in absolute slavery. And let me show you this from Scripture. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. I mean, that's, a, that's pretty plain, right? In fact, that's so plain that we, we kind of want to find a way to, to lessen it up. Right, come on. Because he doesn't say those who do and, and list what we would call the really bad sins. He just says those who commit sin are a slave of sin. So, any sin, if I am given to sin in my life, whether it would be what we call a big sin, or what would be called a, a culturally acceptable sin, I'm a slave to that sin. And that's not the opinion of Stacy. Those, that's the words of Jesus. But that's something we, if we say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I believe that He is Lord, then Jesus Christ has said, when I live in sin... It demonstrates that I am a slave to sin. It's pretty stiff. But it's not just that. There's, there's more. His own iniquity shall entrap the wicked man. And he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction. And the greatness of his folly, or in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. The picture here, in part... Is that the, the more we sin, the more enslaved we become. Right? So it's not just a, a little bit. But the more I sin, the deeper entrenched I am in that sin. The more enslaved I become to that sin. And when we're enslaved to the sin, we, we find better reasons why that sin is okay. But right? initially, when we do anything wrong, we feel bad. And we know that what we've done is wrong. When kids are little and they lie, most kids instantly feel bad about that. But the more they lie, the less bad they feel about it. The more they can justify it. It's the same with anything else. At first, when we do something we know we're not supposed to do, we say, man, that was wrong, I need to quit. But the more we do it, the more we can give a reason. Well, I don't think that's what the Bible means. I don't think God would care about something like this. The world is different today. Surely you don't expect us to live by old, outdated Victorian morality. right? And, and on and on. 
And on it goes. There's just a reason why my sin is okay. That's not a, a finding an answer. Right? That's not I'm grown in knowledge. That's enslavement. Deep enslavement. At the same time, the more entrapped we are, the harder it is to get out. The harder it is to turn away from it. You know, anytime you do something once, it's easy to quit. The more you do it, the easier it becomes. And this is true with with good and bad things. Basic training. I I went to basic training. I was in terrible shape. I, I was not an athlete in school, did not care about playing sports. So I did something on one of the first runs I ever did at basic training with all of our unit. I fell out. And falling out means I quit. I quit running. I quit trying. And that first time, it was pretty hard to quit. It was kind of embarrassing. But the second time I quit, it wasn't, wasn't so hard. And before long, I figured out I could suffer through a little bit of embarrassment. And I could fall out, and the drill sergeants would yell at me and call me bad names, and then they would put me on a truck and I would take a nap while everybody else ran. (laughs) That was a win in my book. At first it was difficult, but hey, I was able to knuckle my pride under and just accept that this was the way it would be. But there came a time where I decided being a quitter really wasn't who I was meant to be in life. I mean, I didn't join the army to quit. So I decided I would suck it up and I would finish. And the first time I finished, it was hard. And I hurled all over the dude behind me's feet. And he was angry, but I didn't care because I had chosen not to fall out anymore. And it was hard. And I thought my ribs were going to crack and my lungs were going to explode. My heart was going to fail. It was the most difficult thing I'd ever done. But the next day, it was a little less difficult. Until... The time I was through in the army, I never really fell out again. The more I did it, the easier keeping on became. That's how sin is. At first, it's difficult to do it. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And the easier it becomes, the harder it is to get out of it. The harder it's going to be to pull out. And the truth is, many people who are living in sin, would love to change. How many people do you know that that start New Year's resolutions every year to try to fix their lives? They turn over a new leaf. Tomorrow it's going to be different. And then in a few days, a few weeks, they're right back to doing what they did before. Do you know why they do that? Because naturally, we have no ability to get out of sin. Naturally, we are enslaved by sin, and there is nothing in us that can free us from this. But there is still hope. God be thanked that though you were once slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of the doctrine which you were delivered, having been set free from sin, became slaves of righteousness. The gospel message tells us of one who can free us. From slavery to sin. The gospel message, when one hears it, 
and believes it and calls on Jesus, they can be set free. In fact, Jesus says, the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. There is freedom for those enslaved by sin. And it's found in Jesus Christ. And every day, every day we see people doing actions that are sin in the physical world. But those actions are a reflection of a spiritual reality. They are slaves to sin. And in all honesty, on their own, they cannot fix the problem. The only way to be freed from slavery to sin is through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I, as believers, we, we know the cure. We have the hope. And there are people all around us with all kinds of spiritual needs if we would just see them. So there are people enslaved by sin... There are also people who are deceived by the devil. One of the truths you find in Scripture is that Satan's great desire is to be worshipped as though he were God. That is one of the, the main things he wants. But Satan is not worthy of being worshipped as God. His vast inadequacies inadequacies render him unfit for such a job. But that doesn't mean he doesn't try. And that doesn't mean he doesn't work in the world to deceive people so that they would begin to worship him as God. And he, throughout Scripture, we find that he does this in a wide variety of ways. And he does it to a measure of success. And he does it by inspiring false religions. To lead people away from the worship of the one true God. So write this down. All non-Christ-centered spirituality or religion is demonic in its origin. All non-Christ-centered spirituality or religion is demonic in its origin. I read an article years ago, maybe last year, year before. And it was asking, the question, the title was a question, Do most religions lead to God? lead to the same God. And I, I thought initially it was written by some wackadoo liberal and I was going to be very upset when I read it. But as I read it, I found that I agreed with him because he said yes. Most religions do lead to the same God. But it's not Yahweh, the God of the Bible, or Jesus, the Savior of the world. Instead, most religions lead to Satan. Now, to say that Satan is behind all spirituality, all religion that is not Christ-centered sounds like a huge statement. It sounds very intolerant. But I can prove this with Scripture. For instance, Paul says, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Right? So there will come a time when people stop worshiping the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Why do they do that? Because they've given heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, when you look at the world and there is a religion that, that pulls people away from Jesus, a spirituality that says you don't need Christ, right, what is it? It is a, a deceiving spirit and it is a, a doctrine of demons. Now, this isn't the only passage that talks about this. 
Paul says of the people in Corinth, rather the, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. Now, keep in mind, the people in Corinth weren't sacrificing to a goat-headed demon, right, that had a human body and had goat feet. They made sacrifices to Athena. They made sacrifices to Zeus. Right? They worshipped gods who, who basically are our myths now, our Greek and our Roman mythologies. And they worshipped, they offered them, and they didn't even necessarily make human sacrifices. We're talking goats and flowers and things like that. And as they worshipped these pagan religions, as they took part in this pagan worship, Paul says, in all honesty... Demons were behind what they were doing. Any pagan religion has demonic origins. Always. But this isn't the only place. Deuteronomy in the Old Testament says they provoked him to jealousy. God to jealousy was foreign gods, right? So, again, as they, they went into the land of Canaan, they went around where... All of these other people were the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all of the Ites. They began to adopt and worship their gods. But what happened? They provoked him to anger. And what were they doing as they worshipped these false gods? They sacrificed to demons and not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Who was behind Asherah and Baal? All of the other gods that the people began to follow in the Old Testament, they all had demonic origins. But that's not all. Second Chronicles said the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and they came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from the serving as priests to the Lord and appointed for himself priests from the high places. Now, let me stop there. God splits the nation of Israel in half. He, he goes Samaria and Jerusalem. Jeroboam knows that people are going to go back to Jerusalem to worship God like they're supposed to. But he doesn't want that. So Jeroboam has an idea. He builds a golden calf similar to the one that Aaron had made earlier in the book of Acts. And he builds it and he gets people to to worship it and to be the priest for it. And he says, behold, your God. Right. So this was the creation of Jeroboam. His idea, something he came up with, was it just a nothing? Was it just a golden statue with no real meaning? No. To point it for himself priests for the high places, for demons, the calf idols which he had made. And this is just a few. Gosh, there are so many places, Old and New Testament, that, that testify. Anything other than worship of the one true God, Jesus Christ as Lord, is demonic in its origins. But they are not just harmless myths. They are not alternative ways to God. Once one deviates on Jesus... They have transgressed into the doctrine of demons. They are giving heed to seducing spirits. It is always demonic 
at its core. That's a hard statement, but it would be hard to take Scripture seriously and not accept that. And every day, we are surrounded by people who have false ideas about who Jesus is and what He did. People who worship gods other than the one true God of the Bible and Jesus Christ, His Son. People who have, like Jeroboam, created their own idea of what God is and what God is like. And in all of those things, it is demonic in its origins. People who are deceived by the devil, they need one thing. They need the same thing any person who's deceived about anything needs. They need the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And that's huge. There is no salvation except in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness of sins except in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no eternal life except in the name of Jesus Christ. Everything about salvation rises and falls on our connection to Jesus Everyone in the Bible understood this. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And it is, in all honesty, to put it in absolute simplicity, it is Jesus or demons. That's it. Whether it's atheism, whether it's another form of spirituality, whether it's another full religion, whether it's an idea I'm good enough, whatever it is, it's Jesus or it's demonic. There's salvation or there's damnation. And there's no middle ground. And every day, we encounter people that are deceived by the devil. Every day, there are people with demonic spirituality and demonic religious beliefs And what they desperately need is the truth that is found in Jesus Christ. And you and I must learn to see the spiritual needs of those around us in all of its various forms. So people are enslaved to sin. People are deceived by the devil. And people are beat up by the cares of life. Life's hard. John Wayne says, life's hard. It's harder if what? You're stupid, right? Right. I didn't say it. You guys all said it. Um, Let's be honest, though. I know in my life, life's been hard when I did the right things. I know life's been harder when I've been stupid. So all around us, there are people where life is hard for them. Sometimes life is hard because life is hard. I mean, live in a fallen, sinful world, bad things are going to happen, life's going to get hard. Sometimes life is hard because we make bad decisions. Bad decisions make life far more difficult than it has to be. Sometimes life is hard because other people make bad decisions and it affects our life. Sometimes life is hard because other people make bad decisions and we see where these bad decisions are leading and our hearts ache at where they're going, the things that they're doing. 
And this, this hardness of life doesn't always seem to have a spiritual component behind it, but I want you to understand there is a spiritual component involved in it. Life being hard isn't necessarily a spiritual problem all by itself. There are spiritual elements that, can, that are at work when life is hard. Right? So write this down. The cares of life can keep people from Jesus. The cares of life can keep people from Christ. When life is hard, we tend to only focus on the fact that life is hard. And I think there are primarily two ways that life being hard can keep us from Christ. The first is the cares of life can cause people to neglect the eternal for the earthly. If you have ever gone through a hard time of life, you know that sometimes all you can do is focus on this moment, this time, getting through this particular issue. And in doing that, with it weighing down on us like that, we, we neglect the eternal for the earthly. We're not going to look at it today. There's a story in Luke 10. Jesus goes to the home of a couple of sisters, Mary and Martha. When he arrives, he begins to do what he does. He, he teaches. He begins to talk about the kingdom of God and all of the things that he generally talked about. And as he does, one sister sits at his feet. She hangs on his every word. And the other sister, she gets up and she goes about the business of being a good hostess. Right, so she's probably making sure there's blankets, making sure there's food and stuff to drink for Jesus and his 12 disciples. I mean, how would you like it if just 12 people walked up and said, hey, can I stay with you for the night? A lot of things you'd have to do, right? She couldn't just run to Walmart and get what she needed. She kind of had to take care of it. And, and after a while... Of doing it alone. She turns to Jesus and she says. This doesn't seem right to me. Don't you think my sister. Ought to get up and help me. Rather than just sit there. And listen to you. Now. On a natural level. My response would be. Yeah. We can all get up and help. Right. But that's not Jesus' response. Look at what he says. Martha. Martha. You are. Worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. See, what was most important wasn't making sure there was food. It was being with Jesus. What was eternal was being with Jesus, not worrying about being a good hostess. Mar Mara, Martha was pressed in, beaten down by the cares of life, and so she was going to miss out on the Son of God being in her home. And that's how the cares of life can work, to make us neglect the eternal for the earthly. 
I've talked to people who are beaten up by the cares of life and encouraged them to, to pray and read their Bible and come to church. And I'd even do a Bible study with them. And more than once they've said to me, I, I, I understand. And I think those are good things, but right now, all I can focus on is what is going on. I've just got to get through this. And when I get through this, then I'll begin to focus on that. Focusing on the earthly, the here and the now, the the immediate, and neglecting what is eternally significant, what is eternally needful. And there are people all around us whose problems are so severe, they cannot think about eternity. They can't think about Jesus. They're just focused on getting through. That's what the cares of life can do. The cares of life can also cause us to ignore God's voice. See, God speaks kind of all the time in a variety of ways. There's a passage in Job, and I can't quote it. I don't even know where it's at for sure. I know where it's highlighted at in my Bible. Job makes a statement. He says that God speaks in a variety of ways, but man cannot perceive it. And I think it's especially difficult to perceive God speaking to us in the midst of the cares of life. We just, we miss it. There's a story in the book of Exodus chapter 6. Moses has come, he's heard from God. God's going to deliver the people. Moses agrees to go and be the spokesman. And he meets with the people and he says, your God has heard your cries. He is going to come and he is going to work and he is going to set you free. And the people cheer. <laughs> Huzzah! Woo! Yes! And so Moses goes to Pharaoh. And he says, God says, let my people go. And, Mo- and Pharaoh was like, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And then he turns to his aides. And he says, you know what's going on? People are lazy. We're not working them hard enough. That's why they can say, the Lord has come to set us free. Make their work harder. Make it more difficult. Beat them even more. And so, Pharaoh's people do just that. And the people turn to Moses, and they're not happy with Moses. I thought God was going to set us free. This is horrible. It's terrible. So Moses goes to God and says, I thought you were going to set them free. This is horrible. This is terrible. And so Moses, God says to Moses, I'm going to set them free. Go back and tell them. And here's what the people say. Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, and they did not heed Moses. It's anguish, spirit, cruel bondage. God is going to set you free. Shut up. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Everything is bad, Moses. I don't, I don't want to hear, thus saith the Lord. I don't want to hear what God has to say. Just go away and, and leave me alone. They were so beaten up by the cares of life. They didn't want to hear from God. They had no desire at all. And that can happen to people in the world too. Oh, God loves me? If God loves me, why did this happen? Oh, so there's a sovereign God who cares about me. Well, then where's He at at work in my life right now? Why have 
all of these bad things happen. I don't even want to hear about that right now. The cares of life can cause people to ignore God's voice, what God has to say to them. And there are any number of things that, that would be the cares of life. We live in this world, so we know what the cares of life are. And all around us are people that are weighed down by these things, beat up by them. And they need to know that there's rest. Jesus says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The word labor and heavy laden are each word picture. Labor means people who have worked to exhaustion. Almost like they, they cannot go another step. They just are about to break down and die. Heavy laden means they're carrying a weight that is about to crush them. It, it pictures someone who, I don't know, maybe they've got a weight on their back and their legs are starting to shake and, and they're just about to collapse underneath that weight at any moment. And what I like about this is that Jesus doesn't tell us what, what has made them feel labored and heavy laden. Just, if you labor, you're heavy laden. If you're exhausted, and if you feel crushed, there is rest. There is rest for your soul. There is rest for the weary. If they would but come to Jesus. See, this is a spiritual aspect to it. Many times people collapse under weights because they're carrying something they were not meant to carry. I know I've told this story before, but we would get new soldiers in from basic training. And basic trainees, graduates, they know everything about everything, just like any new person or any new job in the world does. And they would come in and they'd seen Rambo and they've seen Hamburger Hill and they've seen Full Metal Jacket and then they've been to the store, the Army Surplus Store. And they've got knives and they've got gizmos and they've got all of this junk that they think they need. So we pack up to go out to the woods for the first time and they pack all of this stuff. And the packs we carried weighed about 50 pounds on average anyway. And they would pack theirs with 75, 100 pounds of this extra junk. And you'd tell them, you can't carry that in the hills of Tennessee in 100 degree weather with 4,000% humidity. You're going to die. No, Corporal Ross. I'm hard. I can do it. Okay. So you walk. And you go days upon days, walking up and walking down and running and crawling and all of this. And it never failed. At some point you heard, oh, whoop. And you look back and they were laying there doing the kitchen chicken because they had dehydrated and they had hurt themselves. And it always made me mad. I wanted to kick them just as hard as I could before I helped them. Because it was all their fault. If they had just laid their burden down. If they had just carried what they needed instead of what they thought was cool. They would have made it. So many times in life people crash and burn under the, cares of, the weight of the cares of life. And it's senseless. We don't crash and burn under the weight that Jesus expects us to carry. 
We don't collapse under the things that God has for us to do. We collapse because we're holding on to things we're meant to lay down. All around us, there are people who are about to collapse under the weight of the cares of life. They're beaten up and they're broken down. And they need to know that there's rest for the weary. They need to know that Jesus is a help in their time of need. And you and I, we we have to be able to see this, to see the spiritual aspect of it and do what we can to help them. And I want to point out that the stuff we've talked about today, going out and, and, and saying that these are real problems. There are people who are enslaved by sin. There are people who are deceived by the devil. There are people who are beaten up by the cares of life. It is not judgmental for us to acknowledge that these things are real, that these things are problems. It is not judgmental to say what the Bible says. It is not judgmental to say when the Bible says something is right, it's not judgmental to say that it's right. The Bible says something is wrong. It's not judgmental to say that something is wrong. We are never actually judgmental when we stand where Scripture stands. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't be called judgmental. But it means that we're truly not judgmental. We cannot let the world define who we are and what we do through shame. As believers in Jesus Christ, we embrace the Bible as the Word of God. And we know the consequences of unmet spiritual needs. Besides the very real damage that is done to them in this life, there is an eternity waiting for them and the consequences there are horrific. And that's why we have to recognize that people with real and serious spiritual needs are all around us. That's why we have to see those needs and do what we can to help them. That's why we're doing this study. And our key takeaway is that I must look for spiritual needs in all its forms and do what I can to help. When Jesus saw the world and He looked at people, He didn't see them in light of their ethnicity. He didn't see them in light of their nationality. He didn't see them in light of their religious convictions. He didn't see them in light of their sexuality. He didn't see them in light of their sin. He looked and he saw people who were tossed about like sheep without a shepherd. They were weary, they were beaten down, and they had no one to help. You and I must see people like Jesus did. It is not acceptable for a believer in Jesus Christ to focus on race or nationality or sexuality or religion or anything else. Every person we encounter is someone for whom Jesus died. And we don't get to say, I don't like them. We must 
cross the boundaries that the world places. Recognize that they are not real. They are not biblical. They are not godly. They are, in fact, evil and wrong. People all around us today, tomorrow, and the rest of the week have very real, very hard spiritual needs. And you and I, we have what they need in the message of Jesus Christ. They don't need your politics. And they don't need your preferences. And they don't need your morality. They need one thing from you. Maybe two. They need your compassion. And they need your Jesus. And let me say harshly. If you cannot give those two things to the people you encounter, perhaps you need Jesus yourself. Jesus breaks down those sorts of barriers. There's those that are in Christ and those that are out of Christ. Everything else is useless. Let's stand as our musicians come forward for time.